0: Hey everyone, it's Crypto Dantes here. Quick word from our sponsor. Yes, we have a sponsor. It's an independent author named Chris Hannon who's penned an absolute cracker of a novel. It's called Orca Rising and it's the acclaimed first book in a spy thriller trilogy shortlisted for the People's Book Prize. People are comparing it to the likes of Hunger Games and The Maze Runner. If you enjoyed those, you're going to love Orca Rising. So check it out. That's O R C A Rising, Orca Rising on Amazon. And you can also buy it directly from the author himself, that's csjhannon.com slash crypto, C for crypto, S for sugar, J for jhannon.com slash crypto. And Orca Rising can be yours for just 150,000 sats. Get it now before the price goes up. I'm in before the film writes.
1: Uh, welcome to Crypto and Grill.
0: Welcome back, everyone. Let's crypto and grill as usual. It's Crypto Dantes and Stig of the Pump. Stig, say hello.
2: Hello. Excellent. Great. How's to everyone have you doing here? today? I'm looking at a really nice rainbow over the London skyline. Let's hope that's uh, that
0: is a vision of the future crypto uh, space in general. Um, site into the future, but uh, enough horsing around. Um, we, we've we had a couple of sessions uh, lately looking at potential applications of distributed ledger technology, um, but it's time to focus back on our, our first love, Bitcoin. And you know, I think the, the groundwork that we've done previously with you, if you've listened to previous episodes, um, the, the Bitcoin Standard episode with Safer Dean, um, the view of uh, of Wall Street from, from Caitlin Long and John D'Agostino uh, and even Pomp as well then you know you should have a good understanding of of, kind of where we are in this and um, how Bitcoin fits into the, the current system um, Murad and Masir and others that, that we've spoken to should have given you an insight into uh, the history of money um, and what we wanted to do today, we've got a, an amazing guest who we'll introduce in a second we really wanted to put that case for bitcoin being the apex predator Um, and that's i'm not entirely sure where that phrase comes from i can't take the credit but i I do love it bitcoin being the apex predator of money so without further ado let's introduce our our guest it's dan held from interchange dan say hello
1: hey guys thanks for having me
0: thank you so much for really great to
1: have you um
0: Really appreciate this. So, um, Dan, why don't you, for our guests that maybe don't know who you are, it'd be great if you could just give us some context and um, an overview of, of yourself, what you do, um, what you did before you joined the uh, the crypto world and uh, and what you're doing at the moment.
1: Yeah, so I first got into the crypto space back in 2012 um, and then moved out to San Francisco Gene, and got involved in the Bitcoin community out here it was just a dozen of us did, you know, Brian and Fred from Coinbase, Charlie Lee, Jed McCaleb, um, uh, you know, kind of just this core contingent of really, you know, true believers in in this, in this kind of revolution that was going to come. And, uh, there wasn't any space, (laughs) no money. Uh, it was just kind of held together by the belief in like, Hey, maybe this could be great. And, March 2013 hit, and the price went to from ten dollars to two sixty, and that was the moment when I decided I wanted to build build my first product, and that was called Zero Block back in, back in 2013. That is the the sort of equivalent of the Blockfolio in terms of popularity, and later that year we would get acquired by Blockchain.com, and then I came on board there as the first product manager, uh, hired by Nick Carey, the the first CEO and uh you know funny funny side note on there uh he dm'd me on twitter uh to, to ask if uh, i wanted to talk <laughs> so that's how the conversation got kickstarted. <laughs> um spent a bunch of time with roger too because blockchain was one of his one of his uh, favorite companies uh, that he invested in and after that worked at change tip which did micropayments over social media Then I went to Uber for two years where I worked on writer growth uh, led by Andrew Chen and the global data team and then decided to come back to my first love crypto, uh, specifically Bitcoin, and really wanted to build something that I felt would last through a cold crypto winter and landed on accounting solution for institutional trading infrastructure. So that's what we're doing over at Interchange, which is essentially, taking the back office accounting that every single fund, OTC desk fund, uh, fund admin in exchange have to do. And we take that and we've already kind of built a solution for that process uh, and then utilize instead of each one of them rebuilding the wheel.
0: Amazing. And it's, you know, it's really refreshing and interesting to hear that you've had a kind of previous success, previous career before, um, going full time into the space, um, and then kind of using those, uh, experiences. How do you, how do you think um, your previous career uh, or your previous uh, jobs at, at Uber and other places have set you up
1: to succeed in what you're doing at the moment? Yeah, I think those had a, uh, you know, in early in crypto, I, I stumbled and bumbled my way into success and failure. I, <laughs> not a lot of us knew. I mean, no one, no one. you know, in terms of product roadmap and direction on some of these startups before, it's always tough to know where to go. Um, you know, so learning learning about what founders, you know, it, it's learning what people do, which is it's, it's understanding how investors think. It's understanding how to build a good product development <clears> process, uh, you know, and that's through seeing what works and what doesn't work. And then at Uber, you know, that was a fantastic What What best in class looks like? What was what the best in class? class product manager look like? What does a best in class marketer look like? And so, I mean, we even had professional negotiators. So that was pretty incredible. What does is, a what is best in class negotiator for contracts look like? <laughs> I mean, some of that was kind of fun. Uh, let's put it this way. There's even like a, a theatrical yeah. element to it. Um, but yeah, just seeing this, like seeing both that small scales what working at large scales what best in class looks like I think definitely colored in you know how to approach starting a business how to approach starting a startup Um, and so taking those taking those in to make sure don't repeat the mistakes that we made a long time ago um, while also taking those those sort of like best in class practices and using that to execute properly. So Dan um, am I right in saying that you
0: grew up in Texas as well?
1: That's correct. Yeah, I grew up in Texas and then moved out here uh, in my early twenties. Uh, I'm out in San Francisco. And do you think that had any? Uh, so actually, I love Texas. I think that's the one place that
0: I would move to in the U.S. if I could. Um, I've, I've recently declared as a Houston Texans fan. And uh, you know, Friday Night Lights, the, the sort of Friday Night College Football atmosphere. I think I'd probably have to move to Pflugerville, somewhere like that, just to uh, just to, <laughs> just to bring reality TV home. But um um. Do you think, uh, you know, from what I know of Texas, um, do you think that um, it seems like a very fiercely sort of independent place, um, you know, the sort of open carry gun laws? And um, I think just you know, from what I've what I've read or heard, it seems like a, quite a unique place within the U.S. Do you think that had any uh, influence on your trajectory into into the startup uh, space and and then into crypto and Bitcoin?
1: Yeah. Good question. Um, you know, and, and a fun fact here before I launch into, uh, how that kind of molded me and my personality. Um, I'm actually, I was actually an extra on Friday night lights, the TV show. Um,
0: amazing. Can I, can I send you some you- gear to
1: sign please? <laughs> you see me for a whole of two seconds. It's a, yeah. uh, it's a, it's a huge deal. Your hall of fame. Um, in my book. That- <laughs> that's so great. So great. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so in terms of how Texas kind of molded my personality and my perspective, uh, Texans are vi- fiercely libertarian. Um, it, Texas was its own country for 50 years before joining the United States. So that sort of culture of independence uh, very much rings true today, which is funny because I mean, that, that was like over 150 years ago. Um, but Texans, you know, in, in elementary school, you have to pledge allegiance to the American flag and the Texas flag. Which, to the best of my knowledge, every time I've mentioned that to my friends from other states, they they don't do that. So I think that's a very unique trait. Um, Texans, of course, you know, continuing along that libertarian path, almost everyone owns a gun. Um, you know, I think people strictly believe in property rights, as you're legally allowed to uh, shoot someone who's who's uh, stealing your property, uh, rather than ha- shooting someone based on the threat of your life. So. You know Texans very much strongly protect property rights uh, whether or not I, I I'm not saying I agree with that or not I'm just saying that's that's what it is um and so I think you know and then also the spirit of hustle you know I the Texas weather is very harsh um kind of that heat gets you moving it's around 110 degrees Fahrenheit for a good 100 days in the summer and so you know you're kind of constantly being active moving hustling uh you you know, there's a very like strong build culture there, so I think all of that very much kind of influenced my my skew to libertarian ideology, uh, kind of being fiercely independent, believing in freedom, and that when I, when presented with Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin, I was a big torrenter back in the day and found, you know, kind of really, kind of found myself siding with, with people that were willing to to break the rules. And when Bitcoin came along, I think the the idea that you could buy something that was illegal online was was really interesting. And I wasn't technical, and I didn't know how it worked, but I was like, this is a this is a a uh, an example of what it can do, and that was really really interesting. Um, it's sort of like a, a good use case to show, hey, this is what immutability or hard to seize assets look like. Um, and then once I dug, down, you know, once I went further down the rabbit hole, I was like, oh wow the monetary policies uh, from the Austrian School of Economics. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. Um, You know, if Bitcoin had a central bank that chose an inflation rate at whim, I don't think I would have been interested. And so, um, you know, kind of along that path, that libertarian path, Bitcoin had those traits. Bitcoin had the traits of being kind of a don't ask for for permission, beg for forgiveness type of protocol. And, And that really, really got me excited.
2: Do you think uh, do you, just to come in there do you think that's having a material effect on kind of the popularity of bitcoin at the moment because definitely more as we progress generally across the globe I'm making a massive generalization everyone's becoming more and more more and more sort of libertarian or liberal in the way that they think do you think that kind of curvature is having an impact on actually the viability of bitcoin and the potential future viability of it
1: yeah i think bitcoin's kind of like a glacier um, it doesn't necessarily matter if you agree with the philosophy or not. It's going to keep moving and keep eating market cap. Um, so in terms of does it require people to believe in it? Not really. It People will f- will flock to it to find an immutable, hard-to-seize money as, as socialist policies become more popular across the world. So I, I think that just the functionality of it alone will attract adherence enough. Uh, I think they'll come for that and then eventually have to buy into the libertarian ideology. As that is a core functional requirement of Bitcoin, as no one can rewind a transaction or choose how assets are allocated other than the person who controls a private, other than the individual who, that controls a private key. So um, it sort of force forces people to believe in libertarian ideology, which I think is a good function because libertarian ideology inherently is about consent and freedom. It, it's hilarious in California where we believe in consent. For your body but we don't believe in consent about your money which your money is a representation of your time and energy so it is a representation of your body so i think this is something where yes i would prefer if if we can craft narratives that will resonate in different frequencies that are not just libertarian and i think myself and others are trying to do that where you know alex gladstein from the human rights foundation talks about how the bitcoin is for freedom and I think that's a great way to put it. Um, and that, that really resonates with many different types of people, whether you're libertarian or not. I think a lot of people agree that freedom is a good thing. Yeah.
2: And one of an and interesting thing that, and from our uh, discussion with John D'Agostino, he was saying, actually, everyone, all everyone cares about is what Wall Street thinks about Bitcoin or what it's going to do about Bitcoin. And that's the same in the UK as well with our markets. But actually, it may not be for them. It may be for everyone else across the globe.
1: I think asset allocators, whether it be institutional asset allocators, or retail, will continually look and chase after assets that either bring them a good, a great return, or provide them some measure of protection against seizure coin. Eve 21, events all make it a very good viral, give it a very, very, very good viral loop, loop functionality to have speculative bubbles, which bring in new waves of attention and then and the bottoms the people that truly believe stick around and so i think when these asset allocators i look i think bitcoin doesn't really care who invests in it but we would be remiss to kind of brush aside the 200 trillion in assets under management that are managed by institutional traders if they only move in 0.5 percent into bitcoin which is minuscule and i think you know if you could look at how they allocate assets in their portfolio it's largely you know how do I improve my Sharp ratio? How do I improve my diversification? And Bitcoin represents a very non-correlated. It's a non-correlated asset that has had massive upside. Arguably, be the arguably probably the highest performing asset in this century. Um, and so, I think they would be remiss not to invest in Bitcoin, even if they don't believe in it.
0: Agreed. Yeah. And so, just uh, you touched on it briefly there, Dan, but. Before we get really deep into, uh, into Bitcoin or a lot deeper into Bitcoin, what's your read on the current state of, of the economy, uh, global economy? And um, you know, do you think that Austrian economics has got a legitimate chance of uh, becoming a more mainstream or more broadly and widely adopted um, mode of thinking?
1: Yeah, so I would, I would encourage everyone to zoom out the only way for us to effectively evaluate what's going on in the macro markets is not to look month to month or year to year. It's it's to look decade to decade and century to century, um, and that's where I find it hilarious that people look at a one year performance for Bitcoin and go, "Oh, look, it's failing." I'm like, "You mean it's up 300x since 2013? I mean, how could you possibly come up with that conclusion? <laughs> it's bizarre." Um, yeah, and so if you zoom out, uh, there's a great report put together by Deutsche Bank which is called a journey into the unknown, their long-term asset management study where they look at 800 years of financial history. <clears throat> they go back as far as the data can go and they look at inflation and deflation rates. They look at um, sovereign uh, sovereign bond yields. They look at um, debt to GDP ratios. And this is truly a journey into the unknown. We have never had such a, a decayed, broken infrastructure in terms of, of of, like debt to GDP ratio or rate of inflation. We've never had it so broken before. And not only is it broken in some big countries, it's broken across almost all countries. And, and that's why Deutsche Bank wrote this, is they go, look, this is unparalleled. Um, This has never happened before in history, other than brief periods of time during warfare, but never this bad in peacetime. And so you have that combined with, as well in the report, the rise of populism has never been higher than right before World War II. There's a lot of volatility on the horizon. Um, Only the most anti-fragile monetary policies will survive. And that's what Bitcoin is, is Bitcoin was built to be this very anti-fragile currency and this monetary policy ensures that the incentives have been aligned that it will survive very very stressful events and that's why it survives such volatility and such early uncertainty and so it was kind of built to be that r- super rigorous currency that can survive anything
2: so what do you so what can you see being the tipping point then between this going from uh what people perceive as kind of a pet project for individuals to something that is widely accepted.
1: Let's make AOC president and see what happens. (laughs)
2: Good.
0: Uh, she, there was a, there was a great quote uh, on Twitter I think today um, uh, where I think it was uh, one of the heads of Wells Fargo. She was quizzing and qu- questioning in in either a Senate uh, commission or, or some kind of government forum, um, asking why Wells Fargo wouldn't pay for um, the damages due to some kind of oil leak. And the the response was quite straightforward. Which but it was also alarming. Um, the uh, the response from the bank was, "Well, we provide the financing. We don't operate." the oil um, pipeline so yeah there I mean the fact that you would want to hold a bank um, and a financing uh, outfit accountable for something like that either just shows um, a lack of understanding um, and uh, the thought that maybe you can finance everything by printing money um, or she was trying to prove a point that perhaps she didn't quite land but it was interesting viewing nonetheless um, so okay so Without wanting to lead the witness here, let's assume we are on the precipice. We're approaching the cliff edge, and we are hoping to have actually a couple of separate sessions with um, economists over the next couple of uh, months. But let's assume we're on the, the precipice, and at some point, as you said, the debt level grows too high; it cannot be repaid. Um, inflation's the high high inflation starts to set in. Maybe the, the U.S. dollar, the the euro starts to um, come under some pressure. Um, Maybe there's um, a call for a switch to a sound money, whether it's gold or Bitcoin or both. Um, For someone new to the space, why should they care uh, about Bitcoin? Uh, What does it mean? Um, If I'm new into the space and I'm hearing about the notion of sound money for the first time, what's the best mental model to put in place to to try and understand Bitcoin and what it represents?
1: Yeah, there's, there's a couple of ways to look at it. I think above all else, Bitcoin is a vote for you. It's a vote for you amidst a sea of uncertainty. You have politicians and bankers continually manip- manipulating your life through voting in of bills that you have to pay for and central banks debasing your currency. Bitcoin is a vote for you. It's a vote for you to where no one should be able to take what's part of you, which is that money. That money is energy and time, and only you, willingly, as a willing participant through consent, should give up that money. Um, I'm not saying that people shouldn't pay their taxes. I think they should. I'm saying, you know, once you've already paid your taxes, you deserve to keep that money preserved. And Bitcoin does that. And when it comes to other like ways to think about in terms of a monetary policy, why Bitcoin versus why the existing financial system is, if you look at any financial, any period of financial history, it's ripe, full of breaches of that trust with the central bank and the population. Um, you know, it, it's it's you you would it's impossible not to look at a slice of time and find some central bank that's failing. So, essentially, what they're doing with your money is that they're they're printing more and more, which continually debases the value of your currency that you hold in your wallet. It's the, uh, the reason why your grandfather could pay for, you know, a uh, stick of gum or a coke for a penny, and you got to pay $2. Um, that's a great example of how they erode your the value of your money over time. And that may seem not that big of a deal because inflation is made to incentivize you to spend, uh, spend lend, or invest. However, who has the moral right to tell you how fast or slow you should, you should spend your money or invest your money? Who has the right to sit tell you that oh we're going to erode your money by one percent a year and that will incentivize you, or two percent or ten percent, and so as we've seen it's it's impossible to choose a proper rate of inflation and, and all of these central banks are essentially driving a car in rearview mirror. Um, you've got the the central bank as the driver in the car as the economy, and the central bank is using information in the rearview mirror historical data and then looking through an extremely foggy um, dashboard, or sorry, uh, you know, windshield, uh, because you can't see the future. And then they're, they have a really big delay on the the brakes, the brake gas and steering wheel. And so it's essentially a blind person trying to drive the economy, and it, it's just not possible. Um, so we've seen countless examples of this failing. I think Keynesian economics, if there was ever a chance for Lib, uh, Austrian school school of economics to when it's it's right about now. I don't know when the next financial crisis is going to happen, but central banks have all but exhausted. I mean, they're they're all <clears throat> preaching negative interest rates, which is absurd, and I don't think the mainstream populations will be very happy with that. Um, they're reaching a point to where there's it, it, there's no other move. All the moves are done. I don't know when that's going to be. I don't know if it's in two years or ten. It might even be twenty. These things take a long time to happen and and i'm certainly not preaching a doom and gloom sort of event i, I think this is just a natural cycle of things um, central banks rise and fall um there's epics of eras of certain types of governance structures that rise and fall and i think in our modern day culture there's probably going to be a lot less violence with, with this sort of changeover um, and bitcoin offers something that's super compelling which is freedom for every person in the world to To flee oppressive, bureaucratic regimes, and so um, I think that's kind of the value prop for Bitcoin.
0: Uh, Thanks for that. And it's really interesting at the the time of which we're seeing this because, um, you know, Bitcoin came into life at a sort of seminal moment. It it launched uh, right in the middle of the last financial crisis at the minute at the moment if if you look around the world we're also starting to see a slightly different shift and and more authoritarian governments um taking control and and in china you know the the experiments that are going on there with social credit scoring i think this i think you mentioned um alex gladstein earlier you know um if you've got a system or a, a digital currency that's controlled by a central bank and assume there's no paper and everything is completely digital I think not. Not many people seem to realise the dangers that that could perhaps bring in society and the um, 1984 um, type of a state that that could uh, facilitate. Um, so, what are your views on um, on privacy within within Bitcoin, within individuals, within money? Um, and do you think that uh, that's something that people need to educate themselves about?
1: Yeah, privacy is a, that's a hard, that's a hard one to convey because a lot of people say, oh, if I'm not doing anything wrong, then I shouldn't have to worry about it. And that's not the right mental model to have. Um, You know, it's the fact that it gives the government power over people. And with that power, you can change the way that 400 million people think. With that power, you can change the flows of how their money moves, which that money is a representation of 400 million lifetimes um, and the any any edit of that money edits the entire stored energy or stored time yeah the stored time and energy of their that entire population um, there's nothing more impactful so privacy brings a nice element because with privacy now the governments can't censor what you spend your money on or what you how you how you vote with your money because um, money is information money is speech and so privacy enables the individual to buy, sell things that they consider to be okay and that they consider to be a, a transaction where, I, you know, there, there isn't, you know, if someone knows you're buying a certain type of medication or someone knows you're buying a certain type of product, you might not buy that product because you're afraid that people will know. And that could either be detrimental to your health or it could be detrimental to like how you think. And so... You know, and, and then as well it could be used as leverage against you and so I think you know it's, it's privacy is a, a core element of, of the future of money now when it comes to uh, when it comes to people you know when it comes to Bitcoin and how it's used there I think uh, with lightning layer 2 for Bitcoin that definitely brings around privacy uh, with the with the um, onion routing feature that it has. So that's, I think, really, really cool for Bitcoin. A lot of other coins have been experimenting with privacy on layer one. Uh, so in terms of implementation, privacy is easier to talk about, harder to implement. And I think there's trade-offs between having privacy on layer one versus layer two, but I, I don't want to go too deep down that rabbit hole. No,
2: that's fine. Um, so- so you mentioned a bit around education there. So how important do you think education is going to be in gaining mass adoption, um, or do you think it's simply a case of the narrative will slowly speak for itself more and more over time?
1: Yeah, since there's there's no marketing team for Bitcoin. Each conversion into Bitcoin was basically peer to peer. It's someone putting money into Bitcoin, that the price rising, and them telling all their friends about it. Friends, family, co workers, and it's sort of like the perfect viral loop. Um, and so, each person who prophesizes Bitcoin is essentially spinning up their own narrative. Uh, now, granted, if everyone was sharing insights across which narratives were working or which ones weren't, we might improve our conversion rate into bringing people into Bitcoin as as believers. But. Uh, <coughs> You know, there is no centralized system or decentralized system for us to share learnings or share A/B tests of like, hey, we used <laughs> we used this language on a, on a Facebook ad and that converted people. Um, that was sort of the experiments that we we would run at Uber, and you know, isolating all the different variables and seeing what messaging would would convert or resonate with users. And I think, you know. Um, Again, Bitcoin is kind of like this glacier. It doesn't really matter if you believe in it; you just kind of have to. Um, it's like it's the highest performing asset as an asset allocator. You'd be remiss not to add it to your portfolio since it's uncorrelated and it's the highest performing asset this century. Um, so it doesn't really matter if you believe in it. It's just a it's just a proper thing to do, um, I think. But in terms of the narratives, I think we are getting to a stage where the narrative is getting better and better and better. You know, back when I was in it in it, it was just Bitcoin talk. <laughs> and that was that is not a good place to learn about something. There you really had to spend like hours parsing through all those those, you know, forum threads and the content was mediocre at best. And then came the wave of Reddit and then like early publications like Coindesk. And then over the last two years it's been a lot of medium and Twitter. I think that's that's nice because the iteration on content on Twitter is extremely high and the level of content producers has definitely come up a notch. Um, You know, I think in terms of like very eloquent, very well-spoken sort of people back in the early days of Bitcoin, there was maybe one like Andreas Antonopoulos, and now we have dozens or hundreds. So I'm I'm pretty excited and I'm pretty optimistic that we'll be able to compress the narrative (coughs) into a tight enough payload to where that payload can reach the stratosphere and kind of hit mass adoption or like mass resonance Mass resonant frequency. Uh, for example, most people aren't going to agree with libertarian ideology, but maybe freedom is the narrative that works. And I'm excited to see all of us try to find that that narrative that's going to really really hit that pitch. And so I think that's just a matter of time. It, it's not necessary, not really necessary for Bitcoin's adoption or like at least Bitcoin's price movement. But I think I would prefer Bitcoin to draw in. Uh, retail, the middle and lower income classes across the world, I would prefer that it draws more of them in before we have big institutional flows. But just just based on a pure uh, ownership perspective, but Bitcoin doesn't really care and it doesn't really matter because Bitcoin's going to do Bitcoin. Yeah.
2: Now, it's interesting. One of the things that even only in the last two or three years being in it intensely, even over that period, we've noticed the narrative start changing where people are actually talking more around the fundamentals of it and how that fits into the existing uh, the existing kind of ecosystem that we live in today. Uh, and that narrative, and the, more and more the kind of Austrian fundamentals that sit behind that, even though people who don't know anything about it uh, or about Austrian economics actually are talking more like Austrian economists um which i'm finding fascinating and that's certainly for me accelerated over the last two to three years
1: yeah i think you know at a minimum people will give austrian school of economics a uh, a thought because bitcoin has survived 10 years with that with that monetary policy so it's sort of like you don't have to you can go i don't believe in austrian school of economics and you're like well here's bitcoin so <laughs> you can't really deny it it's 10 years worth of actual data this isn't a uh research report written by someone who works at a ivy league school by an economist at an ivy league school this is real data so um i don't know how long you'll need it to run before you finally you know acquiesce and and finally give in but certainly you're on the wrong side if you think you're right and now so um
0: as we're, so we're on the topic of narratives and i think there's um so some of the work that you've put out there um the research and the articles uh, that you've written um, I think my favorite ones are probably the, the Planting Bitcoin series, which is probably um, the one that you're most uh, well-known for. Um, that, for me, is a really nice and simple way of putting it, um, You know, going through um, the soil, the season, and all the other things. It'd be great if you could take us through that um, shortly. But I think one of the, the, the most powerful things in the entire um, uh, series is that table, is the, uh, the comparison table where you list the, the different traits of money. Um, because not many people think about this. People don't really; they just assume that money is what they use to buy stuff, and and you know that's it. Um, but if you list, you list the different traits of money, and then you compare them against um, the paper money we have today, gold, and then Bitcoin, um, and you kind of lay a case for Bitcoin effectively being, um, I think as we started out at the beginning, um, you know, the strongest um, example, strongest form of money or, or the apex predator. Um, and that really um, certainly helped crystallize my understanding of a narrative in the space. Um, so um, if you could you give us a bit more background to that, where it came from and how you came up with the concept, and whether there was a, an entire team and, and research group behind it, or whether it was just you in a dark room for months and months uh,
1: crafting it? <laughs> well, you know, I, I want to give uh credit to to some people that helped uh intercept the idea. I was on I went on a ski trip with Meltem and Jill Carlson and we were driving back and Jill was like, you know, Satoshi's brilliance was yes, they was in the code, but his brilliance was also in his go-to-market strategy. And that really that really resonated with me. I was like, you know what? That makes it was. He was a brilliant marketer. Um also fit within my mental model of how I think about the world, right? I've I've done growth marketing, growth products. So for me, that that kind of hit like a chord. And so I started to think about it and I pulled together, you know, for four months, you know, I would read, I would read medium articles. I'd look through my Twitter bookmarks and, and threw all those together into one giant doc. And then that sort of self-assimilated into sections. And then it kind of just clicked. I'm like, okay, you know, the best analogy for this is that Satoshi, Satoshi's brilliance wasn't just in the species of tree that he chose to plant, the genetic code. It was the season, the soil, and the gardening techniques that were equally as important to Bitcoin's success. And, and to dive in on the species component, you know, uh, if you think of if you think of currencies as organisms, what genetic code they have eventually manifests itself via traits. And those traits of money are the are what give these different monies survivability. Um, and if we look at these traits you have, for example, durability is a trait. So uh, gold is very, very durable. It, it, it doesn't rust, it doesn't degrade over time. Um, it's gotta be fungible. So one unit of gold is worth one unit of gold, same with Bitcoin, same with the dollar. It has to be transportable, uh, it has to be uh, divisible. Uh, Essentially, it needs to scale from small payments to large payments. And so there's all these different traits of of money. And when we look across this chart of different traits, Bitcoin has the best traits as money. And those traits that it has give it a very lethal component. Um, In terms of an evolutionary standpoint, it is the apex predator. It, It has the most advantageous genetic code, which manifests itself via traits that ensures its survivability and, and also threatens the existence of the other species of money, given their poor genetic traits, uh, their poor genetic code, which manifests itself via traits. So, you know, there's some things to where gold just cannot compete long term. And and here's a great example. On asteroids, there is a very large amount of gold. Uh, You know, I, I think some people have seen these, these terms where People asteroids are valued at like two trillion or twenty trillion dollars because of all the precious metals that they have on them. So, given the probability that we become a space-faring species, which if you don't believe that, then you must believe that we're just the world's going to end. Then, at some point, gold is not tenable as a currency because there's no way we're going to add additional weight to spaceships just for a metal that represents value. It's going to have to be digital. And so, with gold kind of eliminated long-term as a potential that's one example of of many different traits that Bitcoin has that's superior than gold is, for example, it's weightless and can be transported immediately across the world or across planets. You can transfer Bitcoin to Mars or the moon. Uh, The moon, you wouldn't necessarily need to use like a layer two scaling solution. But with Mars, you'd have to open up a lightning channel. But Bitcoin scales beyond planets.
0: So what I'm taking away here, Dan, is that you're saying Bitcoin started off in soil and emerged, uh, sort of, through some green shoots, and is now literally going to the moon. That's the main thing I'm taking. Away.
1: <laughs> yes, that, 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 that's one way to interpret it.
0: Yes. Um, so is that so so one of the classic kind of media challenges, and I think you know we are. Um, it's really disheartening to see the media coverage. It's getting slowly better, but. The media in general doesn't really understand uh, Bitcoin or even money, um, in the way that um, actually people like yourself and in, in the in the space really do. Um, so a lot of the narratives and the things that come out in the press are just terrible. Um, one of the key things that uh, we quite often hear is, look, um, Bitcoin's the first. Bitcoin's the first iteration of digital money. That. The first is rarely the um, the, succeed, uh, the one that succeeds. You know, look at MySpace, Facebook, that kind of example. Um, what's the best way to dispel that kind of a uh, view? And because you, know, you you said there that Bitcoin's the best form of money, it's the apex predator. What happens when um, an even more uh, fierce, um, ferocious predator comes along?
1: Well, it's it's sort of saying like. You know, I think there's a lot of people that use analogies like, "Oh, is it the MySpace, it's the Facebook?" Um, I, I think it's it's more around. You know, this isn't just a social network we can switch, and there's zero cost. Um, th- this is something you store your money into. <laughs> you spend the time to learn about it, and you store your money into it, and it requires requires a certain amount of belief. Um, so I think that gives Bitcoin very strong network effects. And Bitcoin's network effect relative to other crypto assets, if you look at Google search trends and look at Bitcoin versus, let's say, the number two one, Ethereum, and you look at the search volume for buy Bitcoin or buy Ethereum, which that query is, I think, a a more narrow, better defined query because that shows intent to buy, which is essentially the demand side, um, it's 7x the amount of volume. So, you know, Bitcoin has the largest number of current hodlers. It has the strongest philosophy around what the protocol is meant to do. Um, Bitcoin's core protocol is supposed to enable it, is enables it to be gold 2.0, which has very strong protocol market fit or product market fit with those seeking to use it. It's a great way to store money uh, into a ledger that is impossible to mute if you want to send it to someone else and is extremely hard to seize. And that has a good value prop for a lot of people across the world. And these other crypto assets either either going after that use case or going after other ones. If they're going after other use cases, those have largely been uh, to be determined if those are actually valuable. Um, Bitcoin's use case, I think, is the highest TAM and and the most valuable one to go after. Um, If you rebuild the capital markets, that's an incredible amount of money and an incredible amount of total addressable market. And so I think you know, if you're competing with Bitcoin, you have to compete with not only its genetic code, so the code itself, you have to compete with its launch strategy and its perceived fairness and its mythology and its its, its Lindy effect of surviving for 10 years. And so for example, um, Satoshi stayed pseudonymous, which meant that anyone could project whatever they wanted Satoshi to be. Whereas if you have a founder that those founders uh, you know, positive qualities and negative qualities will be highlighted, which decreases the social scalability of the protocol. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have like the the launch strategy you know, Bitcoin didn't have value for a year and a half. So those coins circulated freely and almost everyone would agree Bitcoin's launch is the most fair uh, versus every other launch, which is perceived to be tainted as having some sort of unfairness to it. Um, and then finally, like Bitcoin, ha- Bitcoin has a very unique uh, characteristic where it has horizontal gene transfer, where if it sees genetic code in other species of money that it likes, it can absorb that code. So Bitcoin doesn't just stay static, it is constantly evolving to be the apex predator. Um, and it's an evolving in a way because, it, you know, it's evolving in a way to where it's not gonna just add any new genetic code that looks cool, it's gonna only add genetic code that looks, that has been proven to be useful in its survivability as money. Yeah, and
2: it also has the ability to see what others have tested in in their methods and apply it in a different manner. See the result, The as you said, the A-B testing. They, it can see the A-B testing that other products do and affect the, the kind of input those tests on its own protocol.
1: Precisely. Yeah, it can look at genetic code that looks to be performing well or or at least is interesting and can take that and absorb it. And so given the massive network effect, plus that capability, plus its perceived fairness, plus a bunch of other factors, you know, it'd be really hard to take out the number one currency.
2: And so, so many people talk about, uh, one of basically one of two projections, one of a projection over the next year or two years, the 12 to twenty month, 24 month view, or the when we get there in 50, 100, whatever it is, years time, this is what it will be. But based on that, uh, kind of those, uh, those points. Where? What does 10 years from now look like for you? Let's pick a midway ballpark. If we were to think about Bitcoin and its 20-year anniversary, what do you think it looks like?
1: Yeah, I think by that time, institutions will have definitely bought in on a very wide basis. I think most hedge funds, investment, you know, um, sovereign wealth funds, pension funds will own Bitcoin. Uh, I think it would be negligent of them not to. And so... That will mark a very distinct moment because Bitcoin will have moved from being viewed as worthless to ride it as just used for money launders and drug dealers to being owned by every prestigious individual or entity in the world. And that is an incredible achievement to do in under 20 years, especially with a new asset class with new technology or semi-new technology. And so I think you know, in that moment, I think when they all hold it, Bitcoin at that moment will, will have at least presented itself as a good challenger to gold, which is an incredible achievement. Um, but that's not where it stops. You know, its its ultimate goal is to suck in all the assets of the world and to become the safe haven asset <clears throat> to absorb gold, fiat currency, some real estate. And so that's gonna take decades and decades to do as Bitcoin slowly eats into the consciousness of the world and slowly chips away at the, at the fake trust that we've all lent these institutions uh, where they've continually breached that trust. And that's Satoshi's first uh, first writing after the white paper In the first paragraph. He talks about that where he goes, history is full of central banks breaching that trust. It's full of banks breaching that trust with fractional reserve lending. And so Bitcoin was presented as the antidote. And over time, I think with these waves by 2020, let's see, we'll have the, the 20 or sorry, by what was it 2030? You know, we'll have the 2020 halving event, the 2024 halving event, 2028. Um, so I would expect <coughs> Bitcoin to be worth, you know, 10 plus trillion and have really, really penetrated the consciousness of society and kind of challenged a lot of the assumptions that we previously had. Mm.
2: Well, it's, it's that point, it's potentially that point, actually, 2030 is potentially that point where it starts becoming this uh, a store of value where it becomes a measurement of accounts. Um and actually a true measurement of account where people actually would take it seriously.
1: Yeah, I think yeah, it's sort of like uh the 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 part of the Bitcoin community that fractured into B cash, uh mm-hmm. they often think that Bitcoin is they they their perceived value for Bitcoin is its use in payments. And I think that around that age is when payments really make sense as that value stabilizes mm-hmm. because there's no, no way we can smooth that intraday volatility. Mm-hmm. And so once that happens, it can become a medium of exchange in a unit of account, increasing its network effects and increasing its stickiness.
2: Yeah, because it's the bigger challenge now is actually how do we fix or how do we write all of the wrongs? It's not necessarily how do we create this new payment type. It's actually how do we how do we rebaseline or rebenchmark how we value things across the globe uh, and kind of start fresh from that with that regard.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's how do we. Yeah, how do we rebuild the capital markets? How, would we, how do we rebuild the financial system? And Bitcoins, Satoshi set out the original roadmap for Bitcoin's product. And he was like, look, we can't just start with like making cheap payments. We have to start with rebuilding what money is. And then from there, we can rebuild everything else.
0: So um, I, I love how uh, unapologetic and, and quite... Sort of straight you are about this Dan, I think it really sort of aligns with our views as well and it's great to hear that. Um, I think there's a couple of things we were hoping we could throw at you um, as we're sort of approaching the end um, that typically come up in the media, so coming back to that point around media coverage um, and the fact that it's, uh, it's disappointing. Um, what would you say to anyone writing articles that state that Bitcoin wastes money, Oh, sorry, wastes energy? Bitcoin is a, is a useless resource and, and waste of uh, electricity and power.
1: Yeah. So when I first got into Bitcoin in 20, you know, when I first started building products in Bitcoin in 2013, my first product was the first newsfeed aggregator in crypto. So we took uh, at the time CoinDesk didn't exist. So we scraped the, Bitcoin, the subreddit, r Bitcoin, uh, the hot thread. <laughs> so that's, that's, uh, I, in 20, 2013, I probably read every single headline. I uh, literally every single headline. So, you know, I've I've kind of been very, very much disillusioned with the media since then. Um, And and I've tried to pick apart why. And I I think it's largely, you know, due to you know, look, I get it. You guys are great writers. You're great narrative creators, and you stitch together a complex narrative, and you have to do it in an afternoon, and you got to crank out three of those. but I think some are, 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 you know, it's it's kind of intentionally misleading in a way, and I, I'm a little bit. I think they should look at their core journalistic qualities and go, what am I? What are my ethics as a journalist? What what should I? What's my responsibility? And your responsibility is to report the truth. And if you want to be responsible as a journalist and look at yourself in the mirror, then you can't just say like, oh, you know, I mean, I saw headlines in 2013 where they're like, oh, you can print as much as you want, or just ridiculous stuff, yeah. um, and I, I think you should really look at yourself and go: Do I feel, you know, as a do I feel that I'm I'm acting ethically as a journalist, or am I actually seeking the truth? And you know, don't be mad if you get berated on Twitter when you report something absolutely fucking absurd. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's re- it's really annoying, and it's like you've had a decade to learn it. And I get it; you might have just been assigned this. It's your new beat. Well, reach out to some people that know, and I know they do that. They build a network of different individuals that they rely on, but they are the experts. You are not the expert. We are. We build things. We spend much more time to get into this than you do. We know what's going on, just like any other industry. The people that work in ride-sharing, well, it's the people that build ride-sharing tools that know what's going on, and so lean on us heavily, really take the effort to cross-examine different data, uh, different sources. You know, one, one side's going to tell you one thing, one side's going to tell you the other. You, you know, this is your time to shine. You know, this is, this is what you came here for was to report on something and to report a narrative and the narrative can be really compelling. There's a lot of cool stories in, in the crypto space, but I think like when we see these egregious breaches of trust around basic journalistic ethics, it, it's just like, well, I've lost all faith in in your ability to report on anything now. Yeah, I
0: completely agree. And I think there was um, a a very famous and large global news um, outlet that was revealed as um, paying more for um, the number of clicks uh, that journalists would write. So you know they're they're incentivized to write clickbait headlines and poorly uh, and more sensationalist um, articles because it just got more eyeballs on it. And they got more money as a result. So that, that certainly doesn't help either. Um, okay, but let's say you are in front of a camera. Well, you're in front of a microphone, but uh, you've got 10 seconds to reply to the the next three questions. So um, coming back to the first one there, um, how would you uh, rebut against Bitcoin waste energy as a statement?
1: Uh Bitcoin, like every other currency in the world, requires energy to be created, just like gold mining or the existing financial system. It uses magnitudes less electricity than those do. And given that you have never criticized anyone else in your life that when they use electricity for it to watch the Kardashians eat their hamburger, why do you think that you're morally justified now to, to say that someone is wasting electricity by using it for Bitcoin? They, they paid for that electricity. They deserve to use it in whatever fashion they see fit.
0: Bitcoin can't scale.
1: We have evidence that it can with Layer 2 Lightning that is currently on mainnet. Lightning essentially enables um, uh, an incredibly, it's hard to calculate because it's 400 transactions per second per channel, and that's per channel open. So we're talking scaling, Bitcoin can scale to absorbing Visa, MasterCard, and all the other payment processors if we wanted it to with Lightning.
0: Okay, but the thing is, Dan, Bitcoin is used for money laundering.
1: Bitcoin, just like the internet, can be used for good or bad things.
0: But I'm a bad actor and I'm also going to hack it and steal all the money.
1: Yeah, we wouldn't turn off the internet though, and we're not going to turn off Bitcoin. So some people are going to use it for bad, some people are going to use it for good. We can certainly help police some of those activities on the endpoints, which we can, can be the exchanges or different wallets. Amazing.
0: That's the end of our lightning round. Thank you, Dan. Um, and just on a point that actually you raised, I've often wondered how whether anybody's done any analysis into um, – Um, things like Candy Crush, how much energy does Candy Crush use um, on people's uh, smartphones? And you you multiply that around people around the world um, and just games that really don't give much back. But uh, I guess you almost answered that question in your response to Bitcoin, saying, well, it's none of our business. If you as a consumer are paying your electricity bills, then you can use that electricity
1: however you see fit. Yes, exactly. It... It's kind of funny because Bitcoin's electricity usage is is just so explicit. That's why it makes people uncomfortable versus everything else, which is really hard to quantify. Perfect. So,
0: um, look, Dan, we are um, about out of time. and There's one question that we um, tend to ask all of our guests uh, at the end of the interview. Um, This is the Crypto and Grill podcast, and the uh, 2020 halvening barbecue is taking place at your house slash ranch in Texas. Um, what are you gonna stick on the barbecue um to feed all of the bitcoin twitter personalities guests and uh people that are gonna descend on your your property
1: okay well uh, I'm gonna say something that the carnivore community might not, might not it. like Don't as much but uh <laughs> it's gonna be it's gonna be filet mignon so that was what i had for the steak but man i'm a big surf and turf fan so we're going to be throwing lobster excellent. on there no, too that's
0: good. i thought you were going to go veggie for a moment or vegan um but um, no, that's fine. <laughs> um excellent look thank you very much it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and um we uh would ho- hopefully love to uh love to buy you dinner at some point in san francisco or in london if you're over here so um yeah continue the conversation then yeah. if you're listening to this you are the resistance